Good morning. It's great to be with you all this morning. It's a privilege to preach. Uh, If you don't know who I am, my name is Jake. I'm currently a deacon here at Friendship. Um, To Andrew's comment, I sure hope I'm not preaching for votes because if I bomb this, then (laughs) it might not go with it. It might just ask me not to come tonight. Uh, So let's hope it goes okay. Um, But again, it's a privilege to be here. Uh, to preach. Uh, We've been going through the book of Acts together, and this week we're in chapter 18, as we just read. And if you've been in church for any amount of time, you know that churches, uh, many churches, not all, but typically place a huge emphasis on community, either through small groups or making sure you're there on Sunday mornings, Wednesday nights, that sort of thing. And uh, that is a deep need for Christians. They need to surround yourself with other Bible-believing, gospel-saturated believers so that you can be encouraged, helped, corrected, convicted, comforted, and so on. Um, I can still picture growing up and seeing the men's ministry t-shirts that have the, the, the two nails on them that said something like, iron sharpens iron, you know. And so they would place a huge emphasis on coming together and uh, sharpening one another and it is important, and, and more specifically, we're calling this year our year of mission, and what we see in Acts 18, and what's the title of my sermon, is Gospel Partnerships. Gospel Partnerships, Christians coming together for the sake of building up the church through both discipleship and evangelism. And if you're inclined to think at this point, okay, we're moving into the realm of pastors and vocational ministers, evangelism, that's not really something that I'm good at, uh, or, or you know, getting involved in the church, I just want to push back on that a little bit. The work of gospel ministry is the work of every Christian. The work of discipleship and evangelism is the work of every Christian. We've been set apart for good works by God himself. We've been gifted by him through the Spirit, through his Holy Spirit, for the building up of the body. And therefore, these sort of gospel partnerships apply to each one of us. God has included you in his plan of building his church through these means, not just to add you as a number to his family, which is a glorious thing, but to use you for building up his church, building up his body. So we're going to take this chapter in three parts, three different kinds of gospel partnerships that I see. First, Priscilla and Aquila with Paul. Second, Titius Justice also with Paul. And three, Apollos with Priscilla and Aquila. So if you have your Bible, uh, I'm going I'm to reorient ourselves and read through some of these as we go back through them. Um, and before we do that, let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this time. Please lead us through your word. Please transform us through it. Please help us to see not only the need for gospel partnership. I think that most people in here would probably recognize that as a need, but where it comes from, where the motivation comes from, and that at the end of the day, that it would cause our hearts to worship you and uh, glory in what you've given us and blessed us with, and it would just lead to a life of worship towards you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, beginning at verse 1, it says this, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So it's here at the beginning of chapter 18, we're introduced to Priscilla and Aquila. We're told that they were living in Italy, that they um, were sent out. They were ordered to leave because they were Jews. 
And so they would have crossed the Adriatic Sea, and then they came to Corinth to live. We're not exactly sure why. Maybe um, it's business-related. Maybe they knew that business would be good there, and so that's why they went. Uh, in any case, they're in Corinth. Paul meets them at some point. Surely he shares the gospel with them if they're not already Christians. Um, and evidently they were at some, they at some point in here became Christians because later on we see them travel to Ephesus with Paul. Um, and help in the mission of God, uh, which we'll touch on later. But there, there are two aspects, two possible scenarios of many of gospel partnerships that I want to recognize and touch on here with this pairing. First, that they were united by providential circumstance. And second, they were united by their vocations. First, providential circumstance. I want us to take a step back here and think about this scenario. Think about... Um, the amazing providence, the plan of God that brought them together. For Priscilla and Aquila, they're in Italy. They're across the sea, and they're sent out because they're Jewish, and they arrive in Corinth, and sometime after they meet Paul, who is also Jewish, also a tent maker. And sometimes it can be hard to recognize these scenarios taking place in the Bible. I think oftentimes you're reading through the narrative of the Bible, and it's easy to miss something because the geography you, don't, you may not understand or... Uh, the language, it may be a little bit difficult to understand, whatever it might be. But I wanted to point out, it's no coincidence that these three find themselves together at this time. There aren't coincidences in God's economy, only grace. And this happens in our own lives as well, even though it may take some reflection to see that it's there. Uh, I'm sure if we went around the room, we could each point to circumstances in our lives that led us to certain people in our lives. Um, maybe you're married and you th can think of the difficult circumstance in your life that led to your marriage and you thank God for it. Or you lost your job or you had a job relocation that brought you here or uh, another time in your life and it united you to a church or some, a group of brothers and sisters in Christ and, um, and it was very helpful for you. I've seen this in my own life, particularly in how God brought me here to South Carolina. Andrew, uh, who was just up here, and I knew each other from Missouri. I, when I was in college, I went to a church that he was pastoring out. We formed a friendship, uh, and it, it led to my wife and I moving out here to help with the church. I mean, you think about how amazing that is that we met in the Midwest, which I'm sure many of you Southerners have never been there. I, that's one of my talking points. I usually try and ask, have you ever been to the Midwest? And usually people are like, no, which one's Missouri? <laughs> you know, so, uh, but it formed a friendship, and we moved halfway across the country together so that we could, um, you know, he came first, and then I came a little bit later, but we came to help the church, and we believe that that was God-ordained, which is amazing. Romans 8.28 rings true. God works all things together for the good of those who love him. Second, their vocations united them. Um, what they do to make money for, to provide for their expenses. They were both tent makers. We're told in verse 3 that because they were of the same trade, Paul stayed with them and worked. So we see that Paul was not only evangelizing in the synagogue, but he was also working, and he was likely working with Aquila as they were both uh, tent making. God can, keep this in mind, God can and will use all aspects of our lives to connect us with others, and we should be perceptive to that. This also shows that when the gospel has changed someone's life, 
the effect will bleed out to every part of their lives. We see this in, in Paul's life. He didn't compartmentalize his Christianity. It wasn't as if one day he was in the synagogue preaching the gospel, and then the next day he's in the marketplace or he's working and he's, he has no thought of his faith in Christ and sharing that with others. Um, everywhere that Paul went, no matter who he was around, Jesus was on his agenda. Is this true of our lives? If, if you're like me, you find this convicting. Uh, our culture is fine with our Christianity as long as we don't bring it into our place of work or in the marketplace. And, and honestly, I understand that. The Bible tells us that we'll be persecuted for a faith that people of this world won't understand um, the gospel. They won't, they'll be resistant to it, hostile to it. But that doesn't mean that we're to hide who we are as Christians. You see, if, if you've become a Christian, if you've, if you've truly tasted the grace and goodness of God, you won't be able to keep it keep from letting it affect the way you live your life at work or in the marketplace or wherever you're at. It will overflow. Um, God lives in you. His spirit lives in you, and he will change you. He will work through you to other people. It, it, it's inevitable as a Christian, and it may take time. It does take time, but over time, your desires, your affections, they change so much so that talking about him with others becomes a joy. I would guess that most of us are intimidated to talk about our faith in public because we are afraid of being judged or maybe even have fear of backlash, you know, loss of job or, uh, you know, just an uneasy circumstance at work, which I understand. I work a regular job and, and you know, I'm, I understand that, the fear that, you know, if you talk to the wrong person about your faith, that it might become a big issue. But brothers and sisters, if, do we really believe that people without faith in Jesus have no hope? That they're on a path of destruction apart from him. If we believe that, how could we not share with them even if it meant the loss of our job or worse? And even if that took place, we have a God who will provide all that we need. 2 Corinthians 9, 8 says this, and God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. In all things, at all times, having all that you need, you can abound in every good work. Church, I, I do not speak in this as, as a point of strength. It's not something I've done particularly well with. Um, but by God's grace, I feel like I'm getting better at it. It can happen. As, as my love for the gospel and God grow, I naturally want to start sharing that with others. It's like, uh, you know, if I, I love sports. I'm a big sports fan. Um, sports just naturally roll off my tongue, to, especially to somebody who also likes sports. You know, like if I meet someone who also likes baseball, I'll start talking to them about it. And it's, at a, it's a point of passion. It's, this, it's similar with God. If you have a passionate, close relationship with the Lord, you see his goodness, you can't help but sharing it with other people. And it can happen. And, and that can happen for you. And, and I would just, I would encourage you to ask God for help. Pray and ask him. Ask that he would show you more of himself and his grace. Ask that he show you the freedom you have in Christ. Ask for opportunities to share his goodness with others. Ask for the words to say. And trust that God will give you what he promises 
to give you, and that's for you to abound in every good work. He's going to give you all that you need. He's promised it. There's this quote uh, from Thomas Chalmers that says, the freer the gospel, the more sanctifying the gospel, meaning the, the freer the gospel is to us, the more gracious that we see it as, the more um, loving that we see God in the gospel, the more that's going to flow out of us, the, the more we're going to be sanctified and the more we're going to desire to, to share that with others. It happens naturally as we, as we feast on, as we rest in God and the gospel. So what was the result of this gospel partnership on Paul's end? Practically speaking, he had a place to stay while on mission in Corinth, which was important. He had a strong influence in Corinth. And surely he would have been encouraged daily by these fellow Christians. Later on in this chapter, we read that Paul was reviled by the Jews in the synagogue, and he likely experienced some emotional, relational pain, and having Priscilla and Aquila there surely would have been a comfort to him. Their hospitality would have had an impact. And for Priscilla and Aquila, being around Paul, hearing his teaching, seeing his witness to Corinth, surely would have had a great effect on them. And we'll get into this even later. We even see them travel with Paul to Ephesus and have an, uh, an effect on Apollo. So through this partnership, both Priscilla and Aquila and then Paul were edified and God was glorified through them. So that's the first partnership. The second is between Paul and this man, Titius Justice. Titius Justice, it, let's read here in verse 5. It says this, When Silas and Timothy arrived in Macedon- from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his, with his entire household and many of the Corinthians hearing Paul, believed, and were baptized. So Titius Justice. Now, first, there are differing opinions about whether he was a Christian at this time or at what point he became a Christian, if he did. Um, The words that we just read there, worshiper of God, it doesn't itself refer to a Christian. It likely refers to a Gentile that believed in the God of Israel but hadn't um, necessarily started to believe in Christ yet or hadn't heard the gospel and, and converted um, so, and we've seen this before in Acts, we've seen it with Cornelius and Lydia, who were both Gentiles who believed in the God of Israel, but um, hadn't been converted yet to Christianity. Um, there is one big sign that he indeed became a Christian at some point during this time, and that's this. Uh, if, um, if he wasn't a Christian, or if, if at least he wasn't interested from Paul hearing about Christ, he probably wouldn't have invited him into his house, especially considering he lived right next to the synagogue where Paul essentially had just been kicked out. So uh, he, there is a sign there that uh, Titius, if he hadn't become a Christian yet, um, he does at some point. Tony Marita says it this way. He says, where does Paul go after being run out of the synagogue next door? A man named Titius Justice, a God-fearer, apparently became a believer during Paul's synagogue ministry. Titius opened his home to Paul and to the new church, although the Jews surely hated the idea of Christians meeting next door to the synagogue. So how does this relate to gospel partnerships? And and I would say this, God will provide for us physically through other believers. God will provide for us physically through other believers. We see that clearly with this partnership. Paul had just abandoned his, his ministry to the Jews, 
in Corinth, and Titius was willing to open up his home for Paul and his ministry. And by the way, what was the, re- the result of this partnership? Crispus, uh, the ruler of the synagogue, a powerful individual, which is crazy to think that Paul was just in the synagogue and was being reviled, and then the person who rules over it is converted, and as along with his family, and then it also says that many of the Corinthians believed and were saved. So amazing um, that, and you figure that Titius Justice had a part in this, a partnership with Paul. God promises to provide physically for us all throughout the Bible. I, I think that I'm sure none of you would dispute that, and he does time and again in ministry, in our, in our own personal lives, we see that God provides all that we need, and it leads to fruit for his kingdom. Our families don't know where the next meal is going to come from. He provides. We don't, someone is looking for a place to live in the church, and God provides uh, time and again. I've seen it all the time, and we can attribute it to God's care for us, his love for us. Um, and his desire to work through us. Uh, my, my wife's sister and her husband, husband so my, my brother-in-law and sister-in-law, uh, they've had it, on the, had it on their hearts for a long time to adopt a child. They have three biological children, and uh, they knew that they at one point would want to adopt, and it came time for them to do that. They felt like God was leading them in that direction, so they began the process, which if you're fam- unfamiliar with the adoption process, it's very long, very expensive. And it came time, they were matched with a child, um, but they were told that they were going to need to, um, the following Monday, which was just a few days away, they were going to need to make a payment of about $5,000. And they had about half that that they could pay, but they didn't have the rest. And so they were trying to figure out how they were going to pay it. And so um, he's a pastor, and so they have many uh, uh, other Christians at the church that he pastors at that they can ask for help. And so they started a GoFundMe account and uh, to try and raise that money. And their main motivation was to raise that $2,500 for that following Monday because it was, it was urgent. And so um, in the span of one day, in the span of one day, all of a sudden they start getting all this help, all this um, communication from people and people sending money their way. And, uh, and all of a sudden they were hit with so many people that were willing to help. They not only raised the $2,500, but they raised over $17,000, which ended up covering everything that they needed to complete the adoption because they were going to have upcoming payments. How amazing, how generous our God. Our God, he's generous. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He's not in need of anything. He doesn't need anything from us, but he invites us into his mission, and he provides for us through our brothers and sisters in Christ. Going back to the story of Paul and Titius, I want us also keep, to keep this in mind. Paul's ministry in Corinth hadn't really taken off yet. Remember, he had just gotten kicked out of the synagogue. He hadn't been particularly successful with the Jews here. Um, and so what does that mean for Titius? It means that he likely was not motivated by some level of hype or success or this hot new movement of Christianity because it, it wasn't in Corinth yet. And uh, so let's, let's take a look at his heart for a moment. What does that mean about his motivation? What, what does that mean about Titius's motivation? And I would argue this, his motivation was the message of the gospel, the content of the gospel. His motivation wasn't the fruit of the gospel because if, if that were true, he, he likely wouldn't have invited Paul into his house because Paul had been unsuccessful. 
Instead, Titius, in seeing the beauty, the freedom of what God had done for us through Christ, he was motivated by the good news that the gospel proclaimed that Jesus had come to save sinners, and he wanted to invite that into his life, invite Paul, and see how he could assist in this mission and movement of God. You see, when we find our, well, this means, church, that when results don't seem to be pointing our way, we can still rest in the message that we are accepted, not because of the success of our church or of our lives, but based on the finished work of Christ on the cross for us. When we find our acceptance there and not in our own efforts, not in our own fruitfulness, there's nothing that can discourage us, nothing that can quench the flame of the church and of the Holy Spirit, because now our hope is not in ourselves, but in our God who cannot fail. Tony Maria says this about the need for patience in the church. The work in Corinth started off rather slowly, especially during the tent-making phase, but over time, Paul's ministry produced fruit. This is a great indicator that we need to take the long view in terms of evaluating ministry effectiveness. Though it's sometimes difficult to maintain patience in this fast food microwave culture where we want, to, uh, we want to see immediate results, we will need to go through slow seasons before seeing fruit. So keep being faithful to the mission and ask God to bless your efforts. Oh, how we need that kind of patience in the church and how we must set our eyes not on our own fruitfulness, not on our own successes, but on the faithfulness of God. And gospel partnerships are here to remind us that he will provide all of our needs. So that's number two. Number three, Apollos. Apollos. So the final gospel partnership I want to talk about is Apollos with Priscilla and Aquila. So at this point, Paul has been staying with Titius Justice. The church in Corinth is growing. He ends up staying for a year and six months. And during that time, we're told Paul was brought before a tribunal. He's accused before the Jews of persuading people to worship God contrary to the law, something similar to what Paul sees throughout his ministry. The proconsul Galileo, a political leader, he dismisses the charge and we're told Paul stayed a little bit longer in Corinth. Then he set sail for Syria. It seems as if he was heading for Antioch, which is kind of his home base. And, uh, they, but they end up stopping in Ephesus. And he, he does have Priscilla and Aquila with him at this time. Paul does what he normally does. He goes to the synagogue to tell of Jesus. And he doesn't stay there long. He leaves by himself. So he leaves Priscilla and Aquila there in Ephesus. And uh, saying that he'll come back if the Lord wills. And he actually ends up back in Antioch, which is where his home base is. And then he, he departs for his third missionary journey shortly after that. But back to Ephesus and back to Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos, we're introduced to, uh, to Apollos. So let's read here in verse 24. It says this, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross the Achaia, across, sorry. I think I wrote it wrong in here anyways. Cross the Achaia. The brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And so we see here another gospel 
partnership and how wonderful it is. And, and these are the points that I really want us to notice here. First, a humble correction, and second, a humble submission. A humble correction, a humble submission. First, let's talk a little bit about Apollos. He's certainly an impressive person, is he not? Uh, the fact that he's from Alexandria, it tells us that he's likely well-educated. Alexandria had a very well-known library and even was uh, responsible for um, creating a uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament. And then we're also told that he's eloquent, that he's fervent in spirit, and that he spoke boldly in the synagogue. First, he's eloquent. This means that he's a gifted speaker. He was good with words. His sermons would have been well thought out. He would have given great examples to help people understand what he was talking about, understand God's word. So he was eloquent. Second, he was fervent in spirit, which I read that it could also be translated that he was fervent in the spirit. So Holy Spirit um, likely meant that he was passionate, maybe even charismatic. He likely drew attention for the way that he spoke. He didn't speak in weakness, but he spoke in strength. And third, he spoke boldly in the synagogue. So he wouldn't stand down to difficult topics or issues that were sure to rile the feathers of the Jews. He had come to know what the truth was, and he wanted to share that, and he was not afraid to do so. Um, I'm sure to many of us, we would look at a guy like Apollos, and we would think, wow, what a, God would want Apollos on his team, right? He's, he would be awesome to be on God's team. And if a guy like Apollos was around today, it probably wouldn't take him long to have his own megachurch, to have thousands of followers that are ready to listen to his sermons on the podcast apps and um, quote his quotes, um, which, is, which is great. He, God certainly used Apollos mightily. That's not my point is to, to dog on any of that. Um, God used Apollos and he continued to do so. But what I want to point out is this. The beautiful thing about these verses is that they aren't mainly about Apollos' giftedness, but rather the humble correction and submission between Priscilla and Aquila. We read that Apollos had been instructed in the way of the Lord, but he only knew the baptism of John, likely meaning the baptism of, baptism of, of John the Baptist. This likely meant that Apollos had not been introduced to the baptism practices that Jesus taught. Uh, Tony Marita says this. He says, nevertheless, something was indeed deficient in his understanding. That's Apollos. I take Luke's mention that Apollos knew only the baptism of John to mean that he didn't know about the new covenant baptism practice established by Jesus. Aquila and Priscilla thus needed to explain baptism more accurately. This godly couple would have taught him how in Christian baptism, the triune God places his name on his people. The ordinance vividly illustrates our union with Christ in his death and resurrection. It seems to me that Apollos understood, believed, and preached the gospel of Christ, but he knew nothing of this ordinance in which the use of water preaches the gospel. Apollos lived in a unique historical situation that caused him to need some clarification on this point. So, seeing this deficiency in Apollos' teaching caused Priscilla and Aquila to desire to correct him, which is good, which is right. We need to affirm that. That's a, that's a wonderful thing. Sometimes we can be afraid to correct somebody. You know, am I right? Am I? But they, they were convinced that they, that they knew the truth and they wanted to share him with it so that he could teach more accurately and he himself could be edified, which is a good, good thing. What I want us to notice, though, is the way in which they do that, and that's they did it in a way that was kind and humble, Rather than confront this brother publicly, they decided to pull him aside quietly so as to not embarrass him or cause him shame. 
They do correct him, yes, but they do it in a way that helps Apollos to actually feel that they are wanting to help him, not make him feel as if he's wrong and they're right and you have to join us in our rightness. I also want us to know to notice the confidence and boldness it would take from Priscilla and Aquila to approach Apollos in this way. As we discuss, Apollos is quite impressive. He was well educated, he was bold, but they, Priscilla and Aquila, were not intimidated by him. But rather, in the fear of the in the fear of the Lord, they knew that they must go to this brother and show him his his error, show him a better way, share with him the truth. The way in which we do that is just as important as sharing the truth because we need to do it in a way that this person can actually change. Um, let's also notice the, the, the humility and submission of Apollos in this matter. He was, he was the well-educated one, Aquila and Priscilla, not necessarily. Aquila is a tent maker. Um, so uh, uh, Apollos easily could have dismissed them. Um, Apollos surely had more social power. He may have had more influence but instead of dismissing them, the only indication that we get is that he was submissive and willing to, by the Spirit, evaluate his own position. He was humble. His humility is also shown in his willingness to accept criticism and correction when it's true. How big a struggle is this for us? Is it not? For most of us, our personality types typically allow us to be able to do one of these things. We can usually correct others or we can accept correction, but not typically both. Naturally, we aren't able to do both. Usually we're either the people-pleasing type that doesn't like conflict, that would rather just keep the peace and agree with you and let you have your way. Um, but that kind of person, when they're faced with the need to correct somebody else, uh, they're paralyzed because they can't stand conflict. They're afraid of what that person might think. They're afraid of having conflict. Which is under- I think we can all understand that. Um, and then on the other hand, you might, ha- you might be someone who's more confident, more willing to correct somebody. And you may also be more willing to always share your opinion or share with others what um, you may think. Um, which, I mean, it's easy to share our own opinions, is it not? Typically, it becomes easy to us. Um, But have you ever tried to correct somebody like that? Get ready for a debate. Get ready for a throwdown because um, maybe you've dealt with someone like that before, but they're they're ready and willing to correct somebody, but they may not accept it well. They may not accept correction well. You see, Priscilla, Aquila, and Apollo show us here the ebb and flow of gospel partnership. The truth is we all are sinners and have areas that we need help with, and we need others to we need others we need others to point out our flaws in loving gracious gentle ways so that we can actually change we also need to have spirits that are open to correction willing to submit to others in the church that God has called us to submit to church a real sign of gospel change in someone's life is when they're able to grasp both of these sides both of these opposites Here's why. When you understand the gospel, you see that on the one hand, you're a sinner saved by grace. You don't deserve this life. You don't deserve the good that God has given you. It's a gift. And because of this, when someone corrects you, you already know that you have the capacity to be wrong. So pride isn't an issue. You know, I I could actually be wrong. They might be right. 
And then even if they are, even if they're wrong and you're right, you don't have to shove it in their face because you say, well, they're a sinner too. They, they need help. We all do. And on the other hand, when you have to correct somebody else, you can do so in a loving and gentle way because you yourself know that you aren't perfect and you have flaws yourself. On the other hand, the gospel gives us confidence because we know that the God of the universe is on our side. We aren't afraid of the opinions of others because we're already accepted by the one whose opinion really matters. We can say with the psalmist, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. Of whom shall I be afraid? What can man do to me? And church, I'm not saying that this is, that we're perfect in this. I know we all experience emotions on both sides of anger and or weakness and fear. But as we believe the gospel, as we trust in it, it changes us. And when we have that kind of confidence that God gives us, we're able to correct someone else without fear of rejection, without fear of their reaction, because despite how they react, I know that I'm loved. I know I'm accepted. I don't have to have it from somebody else because I have it from God himself. And then you're also able to accept correction without it destroying you. Have you ever gotten a correction from somebody and it's, it's right? It doesn't feel good, right? It doesn't sit well. You're like, man, that's right. I've been wrong. And it, it can hurt. But when we believe the gospel, we can have confidence and we can be thankful that someone brought this error to our attention because my identity is not built on how right I am, how I have everything together, but my identity is built on God and his promises and his finished work for me. How freeing it is to know this gospel and to live this way under the confidence and humility that only God can provide. Only God can provide this kind of living. The, the world promises many of the things, self-help, look inward, look at your own desires, but that never works. It never can provide us with the confidence and humility that the gospel and God do for us. And one other thing I want to say here about Apollos is he really is exhibiting true leadership here. Apollos was likely seen as a leader in some ways because of his abilities, because he was well-educated, because of how he spoke, his boldness. And uh, what I want us to notice about him is that true leadership isn't necessarily to be the most gifted person, the most educated person, but humble, willing to serve, willing to submit to correction, there's a reason that the qualifications in the Bible of an elder or a deacon are not these amazing gifts of God, but rather high moral character. The only way to get there is by faith in the gospel because it informs our humility and our ability to be bold and confident, not reliant on ourselves, but reliant on God. One example of this kind of humility from a powerful individual is a man by the, by the name D.L. Moody. You may recognize that name. He was a very famous evangelist during his time. A biography was written about him by J.C. Pollock, and he wrote in there that at some point in his ministry, a theology student had interrupted Moody during one of his speeches, and he responded poorly to him. He responded rudely. And Pollock says this in the biography. He says, he reached his clothes, he paused, then he said, friends, I want to confess before you all that I made a great mistake at the beginning of this meeting. I answered my young brother down there foolishly. I asked God to forgive me. I asked him to forgive me. Moody then walked off the platform, went over to this student, and took him by the hand. Moody, a powerful speaker and evangelist, 
he exhibited humility. The success that he had in ministry had not clouded him so much so that he did not know he that he no longer saw his need for a savior, that he was still flawed, that he even the most powerful people among us, the most gifted, um, have this capacity for sin in them. And in this case, God, by his spirit, acted alone to convict Moody of his error, as he does often with us. But so often in our lives, he uses the instrument of other Christians to bring correction. And how good it is that he does this for us, that he allows us to change in this way. So that's the third final partnership that I want us to notice. And as we close, there's just one more point that I'd like to make. I want to close this way. Because after hearing a sermon like this about the need for community, uh, about the need for partnerships in the church, um, it can be, you can look around and, and not know where to begin because maybe you've, maybe it's a new church for you. Maybe you've gone a long time in your life without close relationships and you're not sure where to begin. Uh, maybe you've never opened up in that way before uh, to others and, um, and maybe you, you could be going through a season of, of your life like that right now. The truth is we aren't always promised to have close partnerships in the gospel. There are seasons of our lives where we just, for whatever reason, we go through seasons of loneliness, seasons where uh, it seems that we just can't connect with others. Um, you see, God is, he is the source of gospel partnerships. Um, but he's not, he's not only the source, he is the ultimate gospel partner. He'll never leave us or forsake us. He provides all that we need. He'll give us the kindness and friendship that nobody else ever could. Jesus, he, said, he calls us friends. We don't need to pin our hopes on gospel partnerships, but on the one who gives us life and breath and everything. You know, Paul himself did not always have deep gospel partnership, deep gospel fellowship with others. In 2 Timothy 4.9, near the end of his life, Paul wrote this, do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. And then later, verse 16 in that same chapter, he says this, At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. I'm sure some of us here can identify with Paul here. All have deserted me. No one came to stand by me. But what Paul experienced there and what loneliness we experience on this earth as Christians are just a shadow of true loneliness because we do have one that will never leave us or forsake us. He has filled us with his spirit. He has given us his word. And then he does surround us with other believers as well. That's our, uh, one of our desires here at, at Friendship is to help, help you find full life in community. And so if we can help you do that in some way, please come talk to us. We'd love to get you plugged into a group. We'd love to talk to you about how we can do that, help you get plugged in and, and help you because this life is hard. There are lots of, there's brokenness all over in this world and uh, going through it alone is just not possible. I guess it is possible, but it, um, we need others and, and God provides that for us. There was one man on this earth who experienced the deepest loneliness that one ever could, and that was Jesus. Here's how. When he was on the cross, he was beaten and tortured. 
Not only that, his closest friends abandoned him, and more than any of that, God the Father, who Jesus had been in fellowship with for all eternity, now had forsaken him, left him to suffer. Jesus had done nothing wrong, and yet God had left him there to suffer. And and more than that, he turned his wrath upon Jesus. He was alone. The, The physical torture of Jesus surely was painful, but the relational pain that he went through was likely much worse. And all of this so that through his death and resurrection, we could have our sins atoned for and our relationship to God restored. How good a God we serve that he does this for us. How good a God. We should praise him every day for this, that he gives us new life. He's experienced this loneliness that we can go through, and he identifies with us. He's not far off. He is near. And if you haven't put your trust in him, I would invite you to do that either today for the first time or again for the thousandth time because he is trustworthy. He is with us. He will never leave us or forsake us, and he is near. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for gospel partnerships. And thank you most of all for Jesus and his sacrifice for us on the cross, that he experienced deep loneliness so that we could experience deep fellowship with you. It's amazing. I pray that our hearts would be changed by that truth. I pray for gospel partnerships, Lord, that you would use this church for your mission of discipleship and evangelism in our community that you would help us to be perceptive of the relationships that you've put in our lives to be used for your glory, that you would help us not just to be Sunday Christians, but to go through our whole lives, every aspect, that you would bleed out into every part of our life, that we would always be ready to share the hope that we have with others. And in doing so, that we would magnify your name. I pray that if there's anyone here that doesn't know you in this way, Maybe today's the first time it's kind of clicking for them that this is what the gospel is, um, that you would move them to faith in you and help us as a church walk alongside those people and, and others as they walk through brokenness. Lord, we love you. We just thank you for this time. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.